Seeing Beyond Risk, a podcast series from the Canadian Institute of Actuaries. I'm Ping Tang Lin, the research podcast host. Today's episode continues the discussion with John Juffs and Tom Windling on the CIA's Condo Reserve Fund Research Project. Be sure to listen to part one in the prior episode of your podcast feed. So, Tom, you mentioned pooling of information or data. So what's the availability like of industry data for condos in general? Well, probably John could speak better as far as the elements such as windows and sidewalks and roofing and that type of element. I can tell you that, and I suspect it's the same in the condo industry as well, that for infrastructure, even in uh, water treatment plants, of which uh, the company that I work for, Jacobs Engineering, manages about 200 different water treatment plants, and you'd think that's enough to pull together data. It's still difficult. You don't have the critical mass that lets you construct, for example, time-to-failure or time-to-replacement distributions that an actuary would rely on. So we do have some anecdotal ideas of how long things last. Do we have a rich description? of the statistical variance around those average useful lives? No, we don't. But we do have some idea. We do have some idea that, in fact, the stochastic nature of the lifespan is very similar to what you find in life insurance. Here, we actually use a Weibull distribution to measure the time from initial build to the time when something needs to be replaced, a major component, for example. And it's not necessarily the correct distribution. We don't have anything similar at all, not even remotely, to life tables that you would find in life and pension. But we do have some rough idea of the variance about expected lifespan. And that can be affected by a lot of things, not just mechanical and electrical failures, but even obsolescence. So there's a a much richer set of factors that go into a definition of mortality of an infrastructure element. It's not as simple as a heartbeat or breathing. It's something far more complex that usually involves a decision process of, in this case, a board of directors of a condo association, but can also be influenced by things like the cost of capital for that condo association or other types of owners of infrastructure. So to answer your question, Ping, no, there isn't any rigorous data out there, certainly nothing like life tables, but we do have some idea of the expected useful life of infrastructure elements, as well as some rough idea of the variability about the mean. And we did analyze 300, 305 studies that had been completed by McIntosh Perry in the immediate preceding, I think it was just about two and a half years to when the paper was conceived. So we, we basically took the tables and put them into a large spreadsheet and started doing all sorts of averages and calculations and standard deviations on the contributions to reserve and contributions per unit and things like that. And so these things appear in the report. But that said, that's one supplier, Macintosh Perry, of reserve fund planners. And it's I'm thrilled and honored that our work is being showcased, but it's not a good way to build a database. We need to expand on that and get others participating. And maybe it's going to require government intervention to say all reports must be stored in this warehouse for analysis, right? More rigorous analyses can be done and we can see whether or not the state of savings in a particular jurisdiction are at risk or not, especially if those jurisdictions are suffering and, uh, you know, some of them are suffering a great deal due to things like climate change or a variety of uh, insurable loss situations, you know, hailstorms and wildfires and, and flooding, you know, that we're seeing in BC lately. So, you know, it'll be of great interest, I'm sure, to the Insurance Bureau of Canada to know, is there an alternate pool of funds that these types of buildings can rely on so that they can attract a much lower risk profile in their insurance situation. And a good chunk of the report talks about how we believe that there is an opportunity there to defer risk from insurance claims and basically self-insure. Fascinating. Now, John, you touched on briefly about mutual funds and condo reserve funds and possibly earning something better than GICs. 
Could you just then go into a little more detail about the types of investments that are permitted for condo reserve funds? And in terms of those returns, how do they compare to the costs of repairs Mm -hmm. in general? So right now, most jurisdictions have set very conservative limits on what community associations, strata corporations, condos, co-proprietors can invest in. Most jurisdictions, essentially the restrictions amount to GIC type investments. So there's a few jurisdictions that have AAA ratings and things like that. So basically very mid to single digit percentage earnings on investments. Most condominium corporations don't have a lot of money to invest. They're essentially just funding the planned repairs. And so on an annual basis, and so they don't really build up a big reserve so they don't have a large pool of money to invest on a single corporation level. There are many, many, many thousands of corporations. And so if they were to pool together their savings, as it were, or even 50% of their savings and go after a better return on some safe investments, that would be good. And I know in Ontario, one of the legislative changes being proposed is to move away from the GIC model to a variety of government-backed and or government-highly-rated government bonds. For example, many of our hydro institutions issue bonds on a regular basis, and none of them have had a problem. And it stands to reason that they never would, right? We're always going to be using hydroelectricity. So that's one of the challenges. So how does it compare? Right now, it's a mere pittance. It's less than 3% of the total contributions to reserve. But, you know, 3% is still a big number when you look at it on a pooled basis. I was teasing my team this morning where they were complaining that one of our large projects is only garnering us a mere 2% on a particular aspect of one of the tasks. And I said, well, you know, that's a big job. I'd love to have 2% of Microsoft. I presume the type of return that you're getting out of your investments wouldn't really keep pace with inflationary pressures coming out of your certainly certainly right now correct yeah yeah the investment returns are definitely not keeping up with expenditure costs in fact in just about every jurisdiction in Canada the cost of doing work in occupied buildings has been increasing at a rate of around about four to five percent whereas people want their contributions to reserve to only be increasing at about the headline consumer price index of two percent. So, of course, there's a 3% difference there. Not that it's a one-to-one ratio, but there is a difference. And as things compound, that difference becomes apparent with the declining balances. And then that difference becomes really apparent when the work actually has to be done and there isn't sufficient money in the fund to do it. So that's why frequent updates are good because you can constantly adjust those rates. But many corporations are, you know, challenged, let's say, (laughs) with not understanding that the difference is being eroded with time and that the longer they try and keep that difference large, the harder it is to overcome. And so one of the analyses that we did, I think was something like 20 out of 25 years, the cost of doing work was greater than inflation by almost 3%. So any plan that is predicated on the incorrect assumption that the cost of doing work is only increasing at headline inflation is a bad plan. And uh, I think a, a problem with that, John, too, is that if you're just looking at CPI cost adjustments and you know any kind of return on investment is going to be low compared to the rapid increase in labor costs, especially things like healthcare and the labor that's required in doing a lot of this work is just outpacing what your average investment is. And it's very similar too. When you think about it, you have a portfolio of items that have sort of a contingent life, much like a pension, and you're trying to find the ideal investment. And normally a homeowners association or a condo association wants a very liquid investment because they don't know exactly when they're going to need it. When in fact, they may benefit by choosing a, a maturity, a duration structure that is a little bit less liquid, but more timed, more synchronized with the expected emergence of these lives abilities. 
So it's a lot like an incurred but not reported situation that you have in insurance where you know that there's going to be a report sometime distributed. Your cash flow distribution of the, the emergence of those claims is a certain amount of time if you could structure your investments to fit that ideally. There's no way that's absolutely going to happen in a condo association. But if you <laughs> harking back to the, the mutual fund idea, if you had enough of these reserve funds pooled together to make it worth the while of some serious financial planning, the kind you would expect in a pension fund. Fund, you might be able to yield some efficiencies and, and be better funded for that reason alone. Yeah. Unfortunately, the large jurisdictions in Canada have simply outright banned pooling of funds, and they feel that that also extends to uh, associations to getting together and trying to do mass purchasing. So yeah, it'll be a long time before we can convince the politicians that that's a change that's required. Although uh, there might be enough politicians living in condos now that maybe we can make them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just uh younger generation of condo politicians, I guess. Yeah, I think we're up pretty close to one in five people living in condominium corporations now, which is a significant part of the population. Yeah. So Tom, I understand that the paper has a couple of case studies with stochastic analysis performed on them. Could you give a brief overview of the actuarial techniques sure. that were involved and you know, if there were any interesting findings that came out of it? Sure. I think that Jean-Sébastien Coté is really taking the lead in the actual modeling. And when I came to the project, he described to me the stochastic analysis that he did. And I was really amazed at how many parallels it had with what we are doing in water and transportation and power infrastructure. We're also modeling the longevity of disparate elements, uh, large major capital equipment in much the same way as in our study here for condo associations. We did the same kind of Monte Carlo stochastic modeling, which takes an entire set of assets that belong, for example, to an individual condo association, uh, things like windows, swing, pools, elevators, roofing, siding, and then goes ahead and models it almost like a life insurance problem, except instead of a single mortality, you have multiple mortalities stretching on as a going concern in really ad nauseum for a very long period of time, sometimes an infinite period of time. But I think for purposes of our study, we decided to bracket it within a hundred years and not go any further than that. So if something is going to fail most likely in 15 years, the possibility that it needs to be replaced earlier, say in year nine or later, say in year 27, has to be accounted for. That's the stochastic nature of the problem, that you have a contingent life, just like in a life or pension situation, and you have to be able to model that contingency as closely as you can. So we used a Monte Carlo simulation in Excel that generated random numbers that corresponded to the lifespans of different common elements, and then basically summed them up in parallel and came up with an expected expenditure over a 100-year period. So it's very straightforward, actually, to do this. I know because I've done it myself in the water and power realms and transportation. And what it does is it gives you an insight to the possible, especially if you have a very small set of common elements, the possibility that you may need a special assessment very early in the life of that, that system, that condo complex. And when I say special assessment, I mean something above the regular premium, the regular contribution that is being collected monthly in order to deal with a problem that it happened much earlier. And that is very typical for brand new condo associations who tend to lower 
lowball and make their annual contributions as low as possible, unrealistically low, again, to attract as many home buyers as possible. I can't say really unequivocally that that's what's happening, but the incentives are certainly there, the sales incentive. So in our stochastic simulation, we found that it was almost impossible, regardless of your monthly contribution level, to completely eliminate these special assessments that would pop up sort of in an unexpected way. And again, it kind of it kind of points back to the need for pooling reserve funds together, political will notwithstanding, uh, <laughs> in order to deal with these special assessments and to avoid having people surprised with a sudden $20,000 per household expense that's necessary to repair a swimming pool, for example. So the stochastic simulation is very rich. It lets you observe a lot of different things. It has a lot of inputs that let you vary the sensitivity of the model, and it lets you explore lots of different potential consequences of under-reserving. Yeah, Tom, that's a great point. And, you know, it was interesting to see that as a result of the modeling, the, the basically thousand scenarios over 100 years, that under the current planning methodology, there's a one in 10 chance that there aren't going to be enough funds in reserve. In other words, the, the balance will be depleted, the expense are greater than the contributions. So that's because the models are all built on 30-year plans, but when you extend that out to a 100-year plan, and I mean, let's face it, condominiums started in Canada in 1967, so they're well into their 50s. And it's reasonable to assume that they're going to be around another 50 years. Why shouldn't they be? Most people expect long-live affordable housing. So if they are going to make it to the 100-year mark, imagine if we were starting to do those analyses right now on all the brand new condos and, and taking into the, those uncertainties and saying, is a 30-year plan enough or should we consider, and I think we should consider, the actuarial analysis that supports the notion that these fees are being kept low because of A, a short time frame, and B, trying to be competitive in the marketplace for low fees. And if we did have a large, rich body of knowledge that thwarted that short-term thinking and said, this is going to be a person's home in one form or another for the next hundred years, we'd all be better off as a result. And I wanted to point out too, John, that the magnitude of this, it's quite large. When I was first presented with the idea of focusing on condo associations as part of our infrastructure investigation. I wasn't sure. I didn't think, well, is this really such a big issue? Is it so important? Of course, yes, we do from the standpoint of consumer protection, homeowner protection. It's extremely important. But I can tell you that at least in the U.S., about $7 trillion worth of property is owned under these associations. And about $96 billion a year is paid in contributions, of which about 28 30% of those collections go towards reserve funds for maintenance. So this is actually quite a large industry, and it's one where you don't necessarily benefit from the law of large numbers. A particular condo association is usually not of the size that it can diversify its risk across lots of different similar assets. So the idea of having special assessments, the idea of setting the correct minimum contribution amount to not have those special assessments pop up as often is very great. And once again, I want to put in a plug for the mutual fund idea to eliminate the issue altogether and really benefit from the law of large numbers. Yeah, I mean, when you look at the number of condominiums in Canada, there's 65,000 condominium corporations, and they're in all likelihood contributing some we're in the range of $4,000 per unit per year. So the math gets quite large and it's certainly not as large as the American model, but it's getting up there. But it's a, it's a significant sector of infrastructure that sometimes doesn't get thought of as such. Mm -hmm. Great. So I think we're coming up to the end of this discussion. So John, as the co-author of this research paper, just wondering, what do you hope that readers can take away from this research? I would think the readers should 
First of all, it's written in a very easy to read style. It's certainly got its technical details, no doubt about that, but it's also written in a style that is very digestible for a, a very, very wide audience. Obviously, condominium owners, property managers, politicians, uh, actuaries, <laughs> all of the all of the engineering fields that are involved with these things. All these people should be interested in it and they should be taking away that here's our opportunity to mitigate risk in the affordability of people's living accommodations over the, over the next 50 to 100 years. And what sorts of things will they take away from the research that there is a lot of uncertainty, but just because it's uncertain doesn't mean we should do nothing. And in fact, here are several examples of what we can do to help us tackle the big hairy beast. And for you, Tom, just wondering, as an actuary, how do you think actuaries in general could be more involved in this industry? I think, first of all, I am very enthusiastic about the idea of actuaries stepping into the world of, of infrastructure that's publicly owned or even privately owned, because it is actually a field that really could use their help. As I mentioned, my main activity is in public infrastructure and utilities, things like power, water, transportation. And there's a lot of interest there in how to fund the repair and replacement of aging infrastructure. But there seems to be a lot more interest, in a really concerted discussion, especially in Canada and protecting homeowners in condo associations. I think it's an area where there's really an absolute need in having a sound professional involvement, one that is standardized nationally, one that can create the statistical agents to collect data and analyze it across really what is a very large infrastructure sector. So what I'm looking out of this study is hopefully the, the guiding light, the example that the work that we've been doing in the condo associations would maybe serve as an example for the rest of infrastructure as well. And I encourage actuaries to think about this. It's an interesting property problem, an interesting probably, and a life contingency problem as well. It kind of melds together the different actuarial disciplines. And I think it has the potential for actuaries to become a new STEM area of practice. I completely agree with those comments. And, and Peng, if I could just say one more thing, the need for educating in particular condominium owners and the boards of directors that run these condominium corporations is paramount because these things will be more easily accepted and readily embraced if they're educated about how important they are rather than if it's just suddenly brought up, you know, and forced upon them. So I think that aspect, and of course, there's many, many, many associations and opportunities that are uh, capable of providing this type of education. And, and this report is a great foundation for it. Absolutely. I completely agree. Well, thank you, John and Tom. Thanks for taking the time today to uh, share your thoughts. For our listeners, look out for the research paper on the CIA website. We now have over 100 episodes of the CIA's Seeing Beyond Risk podcast. I encourage you to check out your favorite podcast platforms to binge on past episodes. Most importantly, subscribe to be notified when a new episode is released. We would also love to hear from you. Please leave a rating, comment, or send any suggestions or episode ideas to podcasts at cia-ica.ca. We're always looking for our content on our Seeing Beyond Risk blog. So if you have ideas to share, send it over to seeingbeyondrisk at cia-ica.ca. This is Ping Tang Lin, your host for this episode, and thank you for tuning in to the Seeing Beyond Risk podcast.